following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right, very good. Welcome this evening. Welcome to those of you that are have been patiently waiting online. We're glad that you're with us as well. All right, so let's turn our Bibles to Isaiah, please, again this evening. And we are in the 63rd chapter now, Isaiah 63. John's selection of a hymn goes right nicely along with this. And that was a wonderful hymn, by the way. Think of the victor's song, the victor's crown. And just imagine the Lord coming before the Ancient of Days and receiving for himself a kingdom and ruling that kingdom in great glory. Isaiah 63, who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, this one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? Verse 3, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them, and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people, saying, Who is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them? who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble. As a beast goes down into the valley and the Spirit of the Lord causes him to rest, so lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see your habitation, from your habitation, holy and glorious, Where are your zeal and your strength, the yearning of your heart and your mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Doubtless you are our father. Though Abraham was ignorant of us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. Our Redeemer from everlasting is your name. O Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? Return for your servants' sake, the tribes of your inheritance, Your holy people have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. 
We have become like those of old over whom you never ruled, those who were never called by your name. Somewhat of joy and salvation and also lamentation there all in one chapter, isn't there? Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, if you would, please, and on your way there, if you have a question like you... uh, young people to follow along here this evening. It looks like you'll be here with us. I'm going to give you um, three at the end of the message. I'm going to give you three antidotes to worry. You never worry, do you? No? Well, then I don't have to speak, I guess. Okay. Um, Well, I'll assume that you need to help other people Okay, who worry, like you're asking for a friend. Okay, uh, Three antidotes to worry, so be paying attention to those. And I'll, I'll uh, share with you again a number of uh, things that worry demonstrates in our lives. And then I'd like to have us just ponder through the passage starting in verse 25 to the end of the chapter and uh, gain some insight into that uh, section of Scripture. Uh, before I do that, let me just double check. Did any of you have any pressing questions that you wanted to ask? I had one before the service or be, uh, after the service this morning. I might speak about that briefly. John, you have a question. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's a little bit asking me to get into their minds, which is a little bit tough for me. Um, in terms of divine revelation, of course, we look back with hindsight, so we have a little bit of an advantage uh, that way. Uh, however, it appears to me that you can deduce that there is a, a multiplicity of persons in the Godhead only from the Old Testament revelation. Now, whether that was evident to the believers, uh, certainly not at the beginning of Old Testament revelation. As progress of revelation continued, there would be more insight into that. Uh, you have some more indications uh, later on in Isaiah. Um, I suspect, though, that some people would have thought of the Spirit of God being basically the same as God, just because God is Spirit. They would recognize that He does not have a body. Um, yeah, just remind us, where was that uh, verse? It was... 10, uh, 10, yeah, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. There was also the one in, um, <laughs> yeah, that, but that wasn't the one I was going to. Uh, yeah, he put his spirit within them. That's the one I was thinking of. And then 14, as the beast goes down to the valley, and the spirit of the Lord causes him to rest. So, uh, yeah, that's a very good question. I have to go back and review my systematic theology to see. My Old Testament theology. What do you think there, Jansen? You just took the course, so you're right, ready to answer this question. You agree with what I said? If you couldn't hear that online, he basically said what he said. That's called a cop-out. Yeah, no, it's... Uh, I, I, I kind of feel like sometimes when you look at that they think about that question. There New Testament, not New Testament. There are people today who claim to be of some Christian sort, 
who have the same view that you would have if you just that you could have if you just read the Old Testament. Like the spirit is is not separate from God, it's just part of, but there are a number of passages in Scripture that indicate the Trinity, inter-Trinitarian communication uh, in the Old Testament. You have some verses, you know, and I can't think of the reference just now. It's somewhere in Isaiah we've read uh, where the Spirit and the Servant and the Father are all present, and they seem to be distinct personalities. So by the time of, of Isaiah... Uh, it's it's hard for me to 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 think that an Old Testament faithful true believer who has really studied in the Word would have thought that there is a strict kind of monotheism. Uh, they would understand it monotheistically, of course, but and as we do. But especially, see that the question gets a little more difficult when you go to when you deal with the Spirit but certainly with the servant, the angel of the Lord, uh, the second person, as we call him, of the Trinity, it seems to me that there has to be some kind of recognition that there's something special going on there uh, by the faithful Old Testament saint. But I wouldn't be able to say that for like, you know, Genesis chapter 12 or something. You know, that's way back in the history of Revelation, so... I'll leave it there for now before I say more than I know. <laughs> Anything else? Yes, Kevin. Right, yeah. So no capitalization uh, in, the, <laughs> in the original manuscript, so they don't have the benefit of, uh, you know, say Moses saying, you know, spirit, capital S, look, underline. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, that, re- that reminded me of, uh, so yeah, so 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 13 and 14 are the verses that uh, Kevin was referring to. And the immediately prior verse, I think if you read that, you'll see that the Spirit of God came to David, right? Yeah, so it appears that what happens is God took the Spirit from Saul and gave it to David. It's just spoken in the reverse order. Now, Let's just pause for one second and make sure that we understand this is not suggesting that God takes away the Spirit from a believer ever, okay? The, the Spirit of God, and, and that's, you know, one, one, one common understanding of that has been amongst dispensational believers trained in the Dallas School of Thought is that the Holy Spirit would come and go upon Old Testament saints, but he would come upon New Testament saints and never leave. But I think uh, there's another explanation that I've become over the years convinced of, and that is that the Spirit of God is coming and going in his capacity uh, as, a, um, as the Spirit's anointing of a man who is uh, appointed by God to rule the nation of Israel. And so the coming and going of the Spirit in this case in 1 Samuel 16, 13, and 14 does not indicate that Saul lost the Spirit that he had or that he lost the Spirit that, was, uh, that had come to him when he was saved. Uh, I've made the case before that I don't really think Saul was a saved man like many of the other kings, bad kings that came after him. And so it's really not a non-issue as to whether the Spirit of God uh, 
left Saul and he lost his salvation or something. He never had it. So what we're saying is that the theocratic, the kingly anointing of the Spirit of God came upon Saul and used Saul to be the king of Israel, then left him and went upon David and was preparing David to be used as the king in Israel. And that's, I, I believe, the best understanding of the role of the Spirit. Adding to that, Psalm 51, David says, don't take your spirit away from me. And what he's thinking is not, oh boy, I, I, I've lost my salvation, uh, the spirit's gone, I'm not going to have any sanctification, I'm lost. And I know what he's thinking is, don't, I, I messed up, Lord, big time. But please forgive me, I don't want to end up like Saul with the theocratic anointing gone and me being kicked to the curb, not being able to rule the people that you've called me to rule. So, um, yeah, the Spirit of God. Now, still, did they understand that to be a separate person, or it's the Spirit of the Lord, as you say? Yeah, it's a little, a little slippery, perhaps, uh, to get into their mind and, and understand what they do. But certainly, by the New Testament, we have clear revelation. Well, we know exactly how people who are very faithful Jews today, I say faithful to that system, what they think. There, there is no Son of God. There is no Spirit of God as separate persons. There's a strictly monotheistic God. And they will appeal to Deuteronomy 6 and say, you know, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so they'll, they'll stick with that. Um, okay. I think I've addressed that enough. Yes, Jansen. Follow up or new thing? Okay. And the question is Isaiah 14. Uh, do we take? Do I take the uh, fall of Lucifer here to be really the fall of Lucifer, or is it strictly refer to the king of Babylon? And uh, I'll make the, comp- the question even more complicated uh, with Ezekiel what 28? Is that the other one? Yeah. So. Uh, let's go to the passage, Isaiah 14. It's in verse number, uh, well, there's a bunch of verses. Again, is the scripture talking about Lucifer here? The short answer, I believe it is indicating or pointing toward Lucifer. That is, there is some kind of uh, expression here that does refer ultimately to him, um, but that you know does offer its own interpretive difficulties. Uh, let's see, go down to uh, verse 4. You will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, How the oppressor has ceased, the golden city ceased, the Lord broke, has broken the, ne- the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers. He who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he who ruled the nations in anger, he per- is persecuted and no one hinders. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. Uh, this is about the fall of the king of Babylon. Uh, he, verse 8 says, Since you were cut down... Okay, so speaking of his demise, hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. You know, this is a picture of a personifying hell and saying hell is like, oh, I, I'm so happy to meet this guy finally, you know. He's coming to see me. Uh, to meet you at your coming, it stirs up the dead for you, all the chief ones of the earth. It is raised up from their thrones, all the kings of the nations. They shall speak and say to you, have you also become as weak as we? 
So in other words, kind of a taunt or a mock to the king of Babylon. As, as powerful as he was, he's become as weak as we are. Death is the great leveler, right? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol and the sound of your stringed instruments. The maggot is spread under you and worms cover you. Ooh, that's nasty. So I think there's a, a shift uh, in verse number 12, as common amongst the prophecies in Isaiah and elsewhere, that there's a sudden turn into something that this reminds the prophet of, and God uses it to reveal to us something that happened before. So, uh, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. I, don't, I take that language to be too exalted to be referring to the king of Babylon, who we spoke of here or read of here just a few moments ago. How you're cut down to the ground. There's a, similar, a similarity. Uh, could we go back to our analogy uh, type situation there we talked about yesterday with the men? There's a similarity. He's cut down to the ground, uh, just like verse number uh, 8, you're cut down. Uh, you who weakened the nations. Of course, you might say, well, that sounds like the king of Babylon. But then you, hear, you see these, these, these words and you just wonder, was that really what? I mean, maybe the king of Babylon did say that. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God and so on. I will be like the most high. There certainly are men who have said things like that. But I take it that we're speaking of a little more exalted language and could be used to refer to the king of Babylon. But others say, no, that's not the case. And that's, that is their privilege and I have my privilege. <laughs> so, yes, you have a follow-up? Oh, that's a very good... A uh, very good statement. So John has said, I don't think the king of Babylon could have said these words because he did not believe in the God of whom this passage speaks. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting, John. Yeah, good. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the uh, Very, very, very astute. Now, think of the king of Babylon, John. Go back to who is the most famous king of Babylon? Nebuchadnezzar. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar at the end of his life? You remember? Actually, then he did believe in the God of the Bible. So, um, interesting, isn't it? Yeah. But as you know, the king of Babylon, that's a generic title that uh, could refer to Nebuchadnezzar or uh, who was the king after him? You remember? Belteshazzar. Belshazzar. That was, da- that was Daniel's name, hey? <laughs> yeah, too many bells. Nebos and bells there. Uh, so, yeah, he was, a, he was a real rotten king, wasn't he? Just wrapped up entirely in himself, and his, the queen mother comes in when the handwriting appeared on the wall and said, didn't you, you know, I mean, remember Daniel and what happened with your grandfather and how that relationship was? And then Daniel comes in and he says, you know, man, you knew all this stuff, and you still didn't humble yourself. So he went down. That same night, in fact, he was killed, according to Daniel's prophecy, Daniel's history there. Okay, so I don't know if I extricated myself from that question successfully or not, but I gave you my answer. So the answer is yes, it does ultimately refer to 
Satan, even if it does have some kind of side illusion in the verses 12 through 14, 15, it it does have maybe some allusion to the king of Babylon, but I think it's more like a parallel or an analogy. It's like, this is like that, not this is that at the same time. I don't like that, as you know, trying to make a passage mean two things at one time with one set of words. It either means one thing or it means another thing. We're not trying to be, not trying to equivocate. The trouble with that, not the trouble with, the challenge that that approach offers is that you then have to decide, well, what does it say? You can't say, well, it says everything or it says two or three things. You have to really boil down what does it say, and I've tried to do the best I can with that with you. We've got a parallel to the king of Babylon in Lucifer, and the king of Babylon is very much like Lucifer, as are many of the rulers of this world. But uh, they will be met from beneath by Sheol, which will welcome them with open arms into their domain. Any other questions tonight? All right, Matthew chapter 6 then, talking about worry. I'm going to move a little quickly through some of this uh, at the first because we went over this before just by way of review. In Matthew chapter 6, worry shows that, number one, your priorities are wrong. You assign a level of importance to something that it doesn't have, and so you get all kind of twisted up in your stomach about it because it's so much more important. Sometimes it's helpful to have the perspective that I have tried to use for myself, perhaps less successfully than I have used for others. You know, it's easier to preach to others than it is to practice yourself. But uh, think about, does this, does this issue really matter? Is it going to matter in 10,000 years from now, like what I think it matters right now? Uh, your priorities can be wrong, and worry can show that. Secondly, worry shows that your character needs development. Your character includes your faith. If you're trusting in the Lord, your worry meter will show that. It won't, you know, your tank of worry won't be filled all the time. Your faith tank will be filled. If you don't trust in the Lord, trust in yourself or in others, your worry meter will be higher. Number three, worry shows that your theology has not been applied properly. You are not remembering that God is sovereign. There are things that are outside of your control. That's the case. Nothing we can do about that, but they are in God's control. Number four, your worry shows that your contentment needs a tune-up. Uh, I added some notes here from the last time I'll share with you. Uh, if you. If you have food and drink and clothing, shelter, you know, you have enough. Perhaps, though, you lack contentment, and that's why you worry. Perhaps you want more than you need. You may say, for instance, what am I going to wear today when concerned about how you want to appear and you don't have whatever it is that fits perfectly to the occasion that you are facing. Or perhaps you worry because you have too many clothes to choose from. Now you say, well, that's not a problem. Well, in the Bible, there is an indication that that is a problem. You might worry if you have too little, or you might worry if you have too much. Ecclesiastes 5.12. Take a look at that just for a quick second here. Ecclesiastes 5 and verse number 12. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. He's worried because he has too much. 
I mean, he's not worried that he has too much, but he's worried because he has too much. In other words, you know, I've got all this money in the stock market, and boy, it's tanking. What am I going to do? And the laboring man, he doesn't have any worries about the stock market because he doesn't have anything in the stock market. So what does he care? So you might worry if you have too little or if you have too much. One thing that... uh, you know, might come up if somebody has too little and they ask for help for benevolence, we might have to check with them. Uh, have they eliminated everything unnecessary from their budget? You don't need to have certain things like a cell phone for every person in the family, cable TV or air conditioning at 72 degrees or two car payments, for example. You don't need to have all of that. And so you might have all of that and then begin to worry because you can't pay the bills. And then number five, worry shows that speculation is running amok. Something might worry you because of something that has happened in the past that's like what's happening now or something that you think might happen in the future. And often our minds are very skilled at thinking, uh, you know, what, what's going to happen? I mean, it could be bad. And if it's not bad, it could be worse. You know, uh, what am I going to do? You know, the thing you speculate might not happen at all. So why do you worry about it? So let's read Matthew six twenty five and following. Jesus says, "Therefore I say to you, do not worry." Verse twenty eight. Why do you worry? Verse thirty four. Therefore, do not worry. Three times, he says. In fact, there's a couple more embedded in here as well. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry, verse 25 again, about your life, what you will eat or drink, or your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles, that's unbelievers, seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The Lord explains by asserting, using a rhetorical question, that life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. What does he mean by this? Well, man shall not live by bread alone, by food, and The body is the home of the soul. Clothing and food are secondary to life itself. So the thing that the clothing covers is far more important. The thing that the food fills is far more important than the food or the clothing itself. Let me pause here and just say something that I think might help you to tie this sermon together. Do you remember the Lord's model prayer? Our Father in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom. Remember what I said about thy kingdom come? Our priorities need to match God's priorities. Now that sounds an awful lot like seek first the kingdom of God, doesn't it? Our priorities matching God's priorities. And then after that in the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And he says in 625, don't worry about the food and the clothing and those sorts of things. Put your priorities first with God. See that his will is done on earth. Then seek God for his physical provision and seek God for his spiritual provision. Remember from Matthew chapter 6, 9 through 13. And then uh, in that, that spiritual provision actually included two, um, two legs, if you will, two terms. One was uh, forgiving our, our debts as we forgive our debtors and then asking, us to, asking God to help us avoid sin in the first place. So forgive us when we sin, but help us not to go there in the first place. Those two elements of the uh, spiritual nature of the prayer. And then the recognition of the worship and worth of God for yours is the kingdom and power and glory forever. So you see that the Lord teaches us to pray and then he fleshes it out and how that looks in our lives. Now, the Lord has said, do not worry. Somebody might object and say, you can't tell me not to worry. I can't help it. Life is very difficult, you say. And I respond, good try, but that will not fly with God. Obviously, with God's help, we can stop worrying. Why? Because God said so here. Do not worry. So that means that it is somehow possible to not worry. You can't just say, well, I'm a worry wart. And, oh, well, that's just how I am. Nope. God says, do not worry through Christ here to us. Worrying is sin. You know that? Let's just be clear. Be clear about that in your mind. If you're struggling against something in your life, of whatever sort it is, you have to come to the clear realization as to whether it is a sin or not. Right? I mean, if you're waffling back and forth and saying, well, is it a sin? No, it's not a sin. I don't want to think it's a sin because I like doing that. I like having that, think that thought process or whatever it is. Be sure you know what's, whether it's sin or not. Worry puts yourself on the throne, so to speak. Worrying is harmful. Worrying is sin. Now, we have to figure out in our own context how to obey this command, do not worry. But obey it, we must. We are not permitted to make an excuse as if we can surpass Jesus' authority by our own authority. Verse 26, look at the birds. Think about the birds for a moment. I just saw a bunch of crows in our backyard. I don't really like crows too much. Uh, I like other birds better. Uh, The majestic hawk, bald eagle. Somebody said they saw a bald eagle in this area. Just who was it recently? Fascinating. Or the tinier little birds. But think about these birds, 26. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? The Lord is making a lesser to greater argument. God feeds them, and he will feed us as well. They do not take special measures to 
store up into barns and gather and all of those things, they are far less value. Are you not of more value than they? Perhaps uh, I know those of you that are here share this view with me, but perhaps somebody online has gotten a little confused about this. Animals are not people. People are not animals. People are much more valuable than animals. Animals are of less value than humans. So says Jesus right here. Okay, uh, God has placed the animals in the earth for us to be stewards over, to use, to care for, uh, to manage population, to use for food, and those sorts of things. But this is an, an illustration of God's care for nature and how it is that we can expect then God would help us to be cared for as well. But note that it is only an illustration. It doesn't mean that we can sit around and take welfare instead of taking action to feed ourselves. God has given us the means to get food, and we are commanded to use those means lest we be in disobedience. To put the welfare thing another way, you do not see birds sitting around while other birds gather food for them. Save for the babies, of course, right? Obviously, baby birds are an obvious exception. Birds do something to eat. They don't worry about eating, but they do something about it, right? They move around, they search, they peck, they nibble, they hunt, etc. So you can't make an argument in favor of welfare from nature. Like the birds don't do it. The Lord didn't say the birds don't do anything. They do something, but they don't gather into barns and worry about the provision for the, the next season and all of that. Now, go on to verse 27. Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? Now, some of your translations, they have something different than one cubit to his stature. I would not want, what's that? One hour to your life. You know, I, I, I wouldn't mind the extra hour to my life if it were not in suffering. Uh, the extra 18 inches I don't need. Uh, I have enough inches already, uh, you know. Um, that would be too tall. Uh, in fact, people who have that problem of height uh, often don't live very long. You know, the giantism kind of, uh, really you could say almost a mutation. Um, which of you by worrying can add anything to your life, whether it's an hour, whether it's a cubit? Worry cannot add anything that has value to your life. It cannot add height, years of life, wealth, spiritual maturity, health, Etc. In fact, worry probably takes away from your height in the long run. It probably takes away from your years of life. It probably takes away from your wealth. It certainly de degrades your spiritual maturity and your health. Now, if you deny that, again, you're in direct opposition to God in Christ. Okay? Worry does not add anything. Now, what might add to your life is something like we find in Ephesians chapter 6. Okay, young people, hang with me now. Ephesians 6, 1 to 3, what does it say? Remember? Children? Obey your parents? Where? In the Lord? Why? For this is right? It's not wrong, is it? It's right. And what does the verse after that say? Something about, for this is the first commandment with that... 
that it may go well with you and you may live long in the earth. So if you want to add an hour to your life, so to speak, worry's not going to do it. Obeying your parents might do it, though, right? Everything to do with godliness and nothing to do about worry. Just worry about your godliness, meaning concern yourself with that aim of being godly, and God will worry about your worries. Let him do that. Verse 28, so why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Verse 28 and 29 also uh, tell us from another illustration of lesser to greater. Worry is worse than useless. In fact, we know from physiology and personal experience that worry is harmful. But this, great, uh, this, this lesser to greater illustration uh, comes up again here about the grass of the field. God clothed the grass, speaking kind of metaphorically, and it does not do anything proactive to accomplish that. In fact, it cannot because it's not a sentient being, even though it is alive. Again, that does not mean that we sit around and wait for others to give us clothing. We use the means that God has given to us. But the point is that God has taken care of grass, which will be burnt up in short order. I mean, if, if in, our, you know, in our climate, it comes up in the spring, it might last through the summer, it's still nice in the fall, and by the winter it's dead and brown and yeah, not worth much. God will do the same for us and more, that is, care for us, because you are of infinitely more value than grass. Now, you might ask this question in response, what about all the impoverished people in the world? That is a problem. But it's not a strike against these passages about God's promised provision. Our Lord said that if you seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you, he did not say what would be provided for you if you do not seek his kingdom. Okay, with me? If you seek his kingdom first, he'll take care of his people. But if you don't seek God, and God is far from your thoughts, and you're an atheist, or you worship other false gods, does God promise rich provision for any provision for you? He gives kindly sunshine, rain, common grace, elements of common grace, but even that he doesn't promise, right? There's drought, there are cloudy days. I take it that if you do not seek his kingdom, he does not give you that comforting promise. He may or may not provide, and of course, at some point, we'll all run out of natural vitality, so we cannot apply this truth to say that God will always provide our lives for eventually he will provide for us death so that we may move on to the next life. God has a general care for all of human creation, but not an equal care to how he cares for his children. Do you believe that? The people on the earth who do not believe in him cannot claim the promises that we claim for God's care for us. They don't own those promises. They don't have right or title to them, but the people of God do. If the world does not want God and wants to go it alone, who are we to demand that God would provide for them like he provides for his people, his family members? I've heard many times, I had many times where people seeking benevolence basically say that the church must provide for them whenever asked. I resist that guilt-driven approach. 
Rather, they must be born again and join God's family. You see that? Turn that right around. They say, you're a Christian. You've got to give to me. And I say, no, you must be born again. Try that on for size. If you want all the bennies of the church, come into the church. You know, don't expect us to just give and you can continue to live like you live. Now, do you expect to provide for others outside of your own family? Sometimes we do, and it's nice, and it's maybe a good testimony. But if someone lacks and is living in conflict with God's word, they should not expect God to satisfy their cravings for his promises while they go on living in sin. Instead, they should repent. Perhaps even God would use their need to point them to him. All right, we're coming to the antidote to worry now, okay? The antidote to worry. What is it? Verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Yeah, we mentioned this already. I kind of gave away the the little uh, thing there with the prayer in Matthew chapter 6, 9 through 10. So seek first the kingdom of God. Don't worry about tomorrow. Now, I'm not there to the, three, to the three things yet. I want to use a parallel passage to get to those. So you young people who are waiting for those three, hang on one more second. He says, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. The priorities that you are seeking, heavenly priorities, kingdom priorities, will keep your focus so that worry will be less of an issue for you. You fill your vision so much with the things that are high priority that the lower priority elements don't take up that that space. They don't take up as much space in your head as these other things. Now, there are practical concerns that you have, uh, and and that's fine. Let me say it this way. There is the practical concern as well that there is enough to, to concern yourself about today without borrowing trouble from tomorrow. So let that trouble stay with tomorrow. You might object. But what if I can do something today to solve tomorrow's worry? Then do it. The Lord never said, don't do anything about tomorrow. He said, don't worry about tomorrow. Okay? So if... Just some examples. If you're a smoker, don't worry about getting cancer tomorrow. Stop smoking. Do something about it, right? If you are struggling with a besetting sin today and worried about the consequences tomorrow, stop worrying and quit sinning. You see that? You say, I might not have enough money tomorrow to eat. Okay. So do something about that. Get a second job today to help pay the bills tomorrow or cut out unnecessary bills today instead of worrying about tomorrow. So the Lord never said, do nothing. He said, don't worry. And maybe there are things that you can do in order to uh, combat that tendency to worry. Now, worry occurs 11 times in the New Testament in the English. Six of those are right here. So this is the key passage to talk about worry. There's another one that occurs in the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which talks about persecution. 
Remember the Lord said, when they drag you before the magistrates, don't worry about what you're going to say because the Spirit of God will guide your speech at that time. Same word, worry. I personally take this, you know, some people have said, you know, don't prepare what you're going to say or, I mean, even some pastors don't even prepare their remarks when they go to the pulpit. The Spirit will lead me. Ugh. (laughs) The Spirit leads you in your study, friend and helps you to get the meaning of the text and be able to think about how you're going to express that. But in this context, our Lord doesn't say, don't think about what you're going to say. Don't think about what you might say. You might not even have a chance to say it. But don't worry about it. And then there are a couple of other verses in the Bible that talk about worry, but it's more like a preoccupation kind of thing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul talks to the married men and women, and he says, you know, be good, or, or he actually talks it to the single men and women. He says, it's good for you to be single because if you're married, you will concern yourself or worry about the things of this world, how you might please your spouse. So marriage has a cost to it that you have to count before you enter into it, that there's going to be some, some uh, you know, taking you away from complete or pure devotion to God, like, you know, back to that monastery example this morning, and I'm just going to go there and serve God my whole life. And uh, you, you, you know, that's nice and all. Of course, remember, you take your sin nature with you, as we said this morning. But there's one more major passage on the topic, and that's Philippians chapter 4. Many of you are familiar with it, but let's look at it, and we're going to get our three antidotes here, or three-step ingredients or recipe, if you will, for handling worry. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse number 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. So you've got two things there that are foundational. Character traits, rejoicing and gentleness or moderation. And then Paul says this, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, how, how do you, how do you do, accomplish that? In everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Number one, antidote to worry. Take your anxieties, convert them into prayer requests, and talk to God about them. So we could shorten that all up by saying antidote to worry. Number one, pray. Pray, but take the worries, formulate them into requests that you think are agreeable to Jesus so that you can pray them in the name of the Lord Jesus to the Father, asking him to do his will. Okay? Number one, that is. Take your anxieties, turn them into prayer requests. Number two, oh, by the way, what happens when you do that? And the what? Peace of God, you see that? Verse 7 which passes, surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So you have prayer. But I, we often stop there, and that's too early in the passage. We have to read on. Read verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever things are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you have learned and received and heard and seen or saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. There's another peace, okay? And so 
what you, what you have to do is you have to discipline yourself to take those things that make you worry, turn them into prayer requests, number one. Number two, discipline your mind to think on true and pure things. Okay? What does worry do? Remember those speculations like something bad's going to happen, and if that doesn't happen, something worse is going to happen? That's not pure and lovely and of good report and praiseworthy and honorable things. Those are evil thoughts, negative thoughts. So you take your anxieties, turn them into prayer requests, number one. Number two, you discipline your mind to think on things above, things that are good and pure. And number three, you practice what you're taught in the Scriptures. Look at that verse 9. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. So you obey Scripture. You pray, you think right, and you obey the Word of God. That gives you the kind of doorway into God's peace, which is given again at the end of verse 9. Notice it's at the end of, or the beginning of 7 and the end of 9. If you're missing any of these three ingredients, prayer, thought process, okay, that's good, and then obedience to Scripture, if you're missing any one of those or more than one, you're going to have a problem with your peace. You're going to say, well, I've tried praying, okay, but I... I say, okay, well, are you still thinking about it all the time? Can't stop thinking about it. It's going to be terrible, you know? No, you're not doing what verse 8 says. Or if you're walking in disobedience to God, no wonder you have a lack of peace. But, you know, it's true, I think you'll find, and hopefully you have, that, you know, to those that love thy law is great peace, right? Great peace have they that love your law. Great peace have they who obey God, who think godly thoughts, and who turn their anxieties over to the Lord in prayer. In all of this, we close with this thought, in all of this, in the sermon thus far, the Lord is not dealing with external matters of religion. Do you notice that? In your heart, adultery, greed, uh, the, the light that is in you is darkness, uh, worry, what are your priorities? Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6. Those uh, people who he says are blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who mourn over their sin. He never says anything about, you know, how do you take up the offering? How do you do the incense? What do you wear when you come to church? Those, those things are, are off his radar screen. True religion and undefiled before God and the fathers is not, not vestments and not high church and not liturgy and not, you know, incense and all of those things. It's to visit orphans and widows and their difficulty and to keep oneself unspotted from the world, to bridle your tongue and those things which come from within. And our Lord has laid that upon us very much in these two chapters of the Sermon on the Mount. We'll come to the last chapter chapter 7 here, the next time. But make sure that your internals are working well. And when that happens, the externals will, will follow. A frustration of trying to get... The frustration that I have is observing others trying to get people to come into external conformity with God's Word, but without much emphasis on internal conformity to it. 
That's a doomed process. You need to get the internal first and the external will follow. Uh, if you try to do the external and fit everything into the mold, you're just going to make a Pharisee at best, uh, a false religious person. So we don't want to do that. We want to follow these, these commands, these instructions from our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, perhaps there is something right now or there soon will be something in our lives that will cause us to have to revisit this message in our thoughts, to remember to pray, to remember to think, to remember to obey the Word of God, to remember to not worry, to have our priorities straight, to uh, develop our faith, to uh, exercise our understanding of good theological truth, that you are sovereign over all things. Remember that you care for us more than you care for the birds and more than you care for the bush. You care for your people, and we thank you for that. Help us when we face that next uh, test that we would be able to have some measure of victory, perhaps more than we've ever had before. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're just after 7 o'clock. Trust the Lord will bless and keep you this uh, evening and uh, this coming week. Look forward to seeing you in prayer time as we have opportunity. And let us know if you have any needs or prayer requests or just want to chat. Hope you'll have some fellowship afterwards. And uh, greetings to those of you that are online. Um, We didn't really set up a a Zoom call today. I wonder if we might be able to do that quickly. It's going to have to be a scramble to get it done, so we'll see if we can. But all right, have a good night. God bless.